Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Armand Baboni. He's a there's an MD and a PhD. He's the CEO of Apili Therapeutics. And we're going to talk about um, a new drug that they're coming out with. Um, I don't even know if I can pronounce it right. It's uh, Fevipiravir, I hope that's, that's how it's pronounced. And it has it implications on uh, COVID. So, Armand, thanks for coming. Um, no, great uh, great to be here. And uh, thank, thanks for having me. And uh, importantly, you got both Fevipiravir and Apili, correct? Oh, good. Yeah. You guys uh, abbreviate the name and call it like Favi? around the office or anything or we don't there is a, there is a drug name though for it if we can use that as well it's called abigan and uh but uh favipiravir is uh is is uh is the drug unfortunately for most of us mm. and i think the name uh gives some of its function right the veers like remdesivir and things like that i think it's veer has to do with viruses right it does. And, you know, good, good catch on that one. And, and as a matter of fact, Favipiravir shares something else with remdesivir, not just the name, but also the, the way that it works. They both target the same enzyme uh, that helps to uh, stop replication uh, of the virus inside of cells. And so uh, the fact that remdesivir works gives us uh, a lot of insight into how these classes of drugs actually uh, may work to uh, knock down COVID-19. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second, but what's a, a bit about your background? Um, how did you start a PILI and why, and you know, what's your history? Yeah, so by, by way of education, I did, I did my, uh, my, my graduate work in the MD-PhD program at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Uh, I was really involved in, obviously, the interface between research and medicine and infectious disease, importantly. So uh, that, that's really where all of this uh, started academically for me. I've always been fascinated with this idea of uh, pandemics and epidemics and, and the natural history, starting back with uh, you know the, the, pl- the plague and Black Death and reading historical documents. But that, that really has been a, a real interest of mine intellectually. And, and so Apili uh, Therapeutics was started by myself and a, a couple of my partners with the idea that we would have a pure play anti-infectives company. And, and um, that was in uh, 2014, 2015, when we, when we started the company. And uh, we thought to ourselves, let's start a company that uh, is in this space, because this is, this is what we know, this is what I know, and I'm, what I'm interested in. There's certainly an unmet need for it. And um, from a business standpoint, we needed to uh, ensure that the portfolio was diverse, meaning that um, drug development is, a, is an inherently risky business. And so we thought that by tackling a lot of unmet needs in the space, um, we could uh, help to uh, create a company that uh, had uh, lots of sh- shots on goal, if you will. Um, and so uh, that, that became part of the driving principle of the company. And, and the second piece is I've, I've spent over... Uh, 17 years in the U.S. military as a, an infectious disease, as an officer working on infectious diseases, including things like the Ebola outbreak and uh, a number of other uh, products uh, like dengue, fever, and uh, malaria. And so these are really not what you would call mainstream products. 
stocks uh, in terms of in terms of the, the markets. Um, but what yeah, they definitely. do share, yeah, what they do share is is a great unmet need in the marketplace. And so I wanted to also uh, create a, a socially conscious biotech company going after um, real unmet need with the idea that if we if we did uh, some good, then we would do well in the markets as well. And so I think those were the guiding philosophies for us when we started the company. Okay, that's excellent. Now, I guess uh, to the, um, the drug itself. So what, what phase uh, of the clinical trial process are you in? And, you know, uh, for listeners that don't know, like, what are the phases and what, what are you mm-hmm. at right now? Yeah, so so there are, uh, in fact, in the, U- in the United States, at least, and I'll use that as kind of our benchmark, um, there are four phases of clinical trials and, and uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, and, and uh, phase four. And, and they all occur to do a, a number of things, which are to gather the data necessary to demonstrate that the drug is safe uh, and in, in, in regulatory uh, terms, um, efficacious or that it works. And so uh, the, the phase one studies are generally um, first in man studies that demonstrate safety, that if you give the drug to otherwise healthy volunteers, you don't have uh, unwanted uh, side effects or that you at least can characterize those. In phase two studies, you're looking for the appropriate dose. How much of this drug do we have to give to try and start to, to do what we say we're going to do, in this case, uh, knock down COVID-19? And then phase three, those are those large randomized controlled trials, hopefully, that are used to demonstrate efficacy. You've proven it's safe. You start to have an idea of the dose. And now with those large phase three studies, you're showing wow, it really does work the way we think it does. And we put it into a larger group of people to show that it's both safe and efficacious. And that becomes the basis for an approval. Of course, those studies uh, you know, aren't the entire population. And so there are things uh, after approval generally that are called phase four studies, which look at the, at the effect of a drug in a population as you give it to more and more people. And so it's a very stepwise approach to, um, to developing drugs. Um, it can take a long time, but each step is quite important and carries a, a chance of a failure, frankly. With bavipiravir, um, there have been many, many studies run all to date. There have been, uh, in the U.S., three phase threes that have been run. Um, it's approved. Uh, so that, that's the one where it shows F that, that it actually works. All of those safety and dosing studies are, are largely done. And it's approved for pandemic flu in a number of different uh, areas, including uh, Japan and China. And recent data has come out about COVID-19. And so uh, we are specifically running phase two and now phase three studies in uh, favipiravir to, uh, to demonstrate that it works the way we think it will against uh, COVID-19. So very, very advanced um, it's one of, uh, I would say, the most advanced products that is an oral tablet. You can take it by mouth um, and uh, for COVID-19. And so it's, it's really exciting to be at this stage. And, and I suspect that there's going to be more and more data that reads out uh, very, very soon. We could have a, a, you know, approved products uh, uh, certainly by early next year. And I think that's, that's really exciting. I would think it would really annoy you when people say, oh, uh, you know, the only way out is a vaccine. You know, this is a antiviral, it's yep. not a vaccine. Does that grate on your nerves? Or what do you think when people say that? Do you think that's short-sighted? No, I, I don't. I mean, I actually hope for a vaccine as well. Um, and, I, and I have to say, um, I'll, I'll be uh, the first in line if possible uh, once they demonstrate that it's safe and efficacious. And I think that's coming soon, hopefully. However, what I would say, and, and this is the part that maybe, uh, you know, folks haven't thought this through, but vaccines are just one piece of the puzzle, one tool in our toolbox. And um, it's going to, uh, it's, it's going to one, take a long time 
to uh, get enough vaccine out into the market once it's proven safe and efficacious. And that's probably early next year, you know, late this year, if you, if you're, if you're an optimist, but you still then need to make it, make it in large enough volumes to get it uh, to practically everybody on earth. I mean, so many people are naive to COVID-19 that we really have to vaccinate 60, 70% of the population of the entire world. Um, in order to get uh, real immunity built up in the population. Um, that takes time. Um, so even if it's approved and it's safe and it's efficacious, and we're not sure that it's going to be completely efficacious because most vaccines are not 100%. Most are about 50 or 60% if you use the flu as the flu vaccine as a benchmark, effective. And, uh, and it doesn't work as well in all populations. And so elderly uh, folks generally don't have the same immune response that's as robust as folks who are younger. Um, so it will likely not work as well for them. And so all of a sudden we're starting to look at, you know, all of the all of the logistics of doing the work on a vaccine to get it to work. And and so even if everything works really well and you get it out there, you can find some way to actually get it to people. It won't work in everybody. And then it takes time. It takes time to build up immunity. And so I think I think we're really looking at uh, this is just one piece of the puzzle. In the meantime, the virus is still circulating. And I think an example is probably worthwhile here. And so we have a, an example of how this works in flu. And so influenza, you have to get a shot every year. And I'm hoping you're going to tell me you got your flu shot already or you're, you're going to soon. But, uh, you know, you go out and you get your flu shot. And uh, some years it works well and some years it doesn't. Um, and uh, just because we have the vaccine doesn't mean that there aren't other products out there for influenza. Uh, Tamiflu is a great example of this, where you, you have a flu shot that's available. It doesn't cover everybody. Um, it doesn't always work. And um, when you have an outbreak, you give a drug like Tamiflu, which reduces the symptoms and, and um, uh, the severity of the disease. That's exactly the strategy that we have with favipiravir. Um, so with all of that said, the vaccine is just a tool in our toolbox. And it doesn't mean that we don't need all of these other things like remdesivir or favipiravir or convalescent plasma or all those other things that are out there to help with the outbreak. I know that was a long response, but I think it's a really important point. That, yeah, no, uh, I understand. Uh, the, 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 um, for vaccines, at least, they seem to have what they call warp speed yep. provisions. Are, are, are you aware of, uh, is there a loosening or an expediting of the regulations surrounding vaccines? And does that apply to you guys in developing your antiviral? Um, so yes, the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, but let me qualify it. So, uh, operation warp speed is, uh, is the program that you're referring to and, and they have put a huge effort on, uh, getting vaccines up and running and developed and, uh, and studied to show that they're safe and efficacious. No question about it. It's, it's amazing how quickly they're going. Um, Operation Warp Speed is also looking at therapeutics, and, and we have had discussions with the folks at Operation Warp Speed. Uh, therapeutic drugs are also available um, for this ex expedited process. What I will say is that there are no shortcuts for safety, and Operation Warp Speed, despite moving as quickly as possible, um, I've been in very, very impressed with the professionals, the regulatory professionals, and my colleagues who at the core of what they're doing, and certainly what we're doing at Apilli is demonstrating that, um, yes, we have options, but um, we have to demonstrate that they're both safe and efficacious. And, and for favipiravir, we can, we can move faster through a, a lot of things, but it doesn't obviate the need to run large, well-controlled trials that are able to demonstrate that the drug actually works and that it's safe. And so that, that's been a guiding principle for us, is that... Um, will work and have been working with, with folks to move things along as quickly as possible. Um, but we're, where we, we cannot compromise is on, uh, is on safety, frankly, um, and running the trials to demonstrate that it's both safe and, and that it works.
I understood. So this drug uh, attempts to slow or stop the viral replication once it's entered a target cell. But what, mm-hmm. what can you say about the mechanism by which it does that? Yeah, so um, the, the mechanism of action is uh, it targets a, a protein, uh, an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is an enzyme that help, helps the virus to replicate um, intracellularly. So the, the virus gets into a cell, it hijacks the cellular machinery, um, and it uses this um, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, RDRP, to, uh, to replicate its genetic material. In, in a way that's that's faithful, and it allows the virus to uh, to make copies of itself and then go on to infect other cells. And so, what uh, RNA, uh, what uh, favipiravir does is it's uh, uh, it, it actually inserts itself into that process um, and and does not allow the enzyme to uh, to build a faithful copy of the genetic material. And so, it creates mutations, and those mutations cause the uh, uh, the virus to not be able to replicate. And so um, it stops the replication process. So uh, it's best used very early in the course of disease where you uh, you can have an effect. You will have some cells that are um, um, infected, but it, it, importantly, it won't go on. Uh, the virus won't go on to infect many other cells and you don't get that huge viral load, which causes, uh, in, in the case of COVID-19, a cytokine storm, and then all of the other downstream effects. And so um, it, it's best used early, um, interferes with that replication process um, by inserting itself um, into, the, uh, into the machinery uh, and, and this enzyme. So a uh, very well understood mechanism that's been worked out by the, the innovators of this drug at uh, Fujifilm Toyama um, in Japan. So uh, what, what are some of the possible um, other things that go on in the cell that would be, you know, maybe natively affected or amplified or decreased mm-hmm. as a result of this? So, so you're you're speaking specifically about potential side effects. Yeah, side effects, right? But I mean, you know, just even in terms of the science, um, yeah, you know, you're slowing viral replication. So, are there other cellular processes that are being affected, whether or not they're strong enough to cause a side effect in the person? You know, what's the thought there? No. So, interestingly, the RDRP is a is a viral protein, and so it doesn't it uh, interfere uh, necessarily. It doesn't necessarily interfere with uh, with that specific process in, in other uh, parts of the cell. Um, there are some instances, however, um, where, you know, nucleoside analogs, which is what this acts as, um, can be um, genotoxic. Um, so there can be some uh, toxicity associated with it, which is why this drug is, is probably not particularly well-suited for women uh, of childbearing age. You need to ensure that you're not going to get pregnant while on this drug. Um, and, uh, and, and probably not also very, very young children. Now, again, this was science, this is data demonstrated in animal studies. It's never been shown in humans. Um, and it's been in thousands of people at this point. And so, uh, it, it is a theoretical risk based on the science, but, um, fairly well tolerated, uh, no serious adverse events. Again, in the studies that have been run, I, I had the opportunity to look at this drug for the Ebola outbreak. The doses were very, very high. And the, the adverse events are very well understood. There's some transient liver enzyme rises that go away when you stop the drug. And then also a protein called uric acid, which is increased, again, also goes away when you remove the drug. But other than that, it's a, it's a, it's a very well tolerated uh, drug. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so far in your testing, I guess, what, what's the model? Has it been a mouse model or... You know, what did the uh, the previous phases look like or the previous testing look like? Yeah, so there's preclinical uh, um, evidence to show um, its effectiveness, and that was done in a number of different animal models, and uh, including mice, 
um, non-human primates. Uh, the, some of the studies are, are done in uh, preclinical toxicology models, other animals. But um, uh, this has been in the, also, in, in addition, as we've run the clinical trials, it's been in thousands of people and uh, has been uh, approved for use in pandemic flu. And so I think that's where this is a little bit different than many of the other drugs that are out there. This is, this is not um, a science experiment that's been rolled out quickly for COVID-19. This is a drug that's been around for a very long time. It's a broad spectrum RNA virus inhibitor, meaning it stops lots and lots of different RNA viruses. It's been tried in a lot of them. So it was tried in Ebola um, and had showed some efficacy uh, during the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Um, there's evidence to suggest that it works in other diseases like loss of fever, um, and then of course COVID-19. And so, um, so much like remdesivir, um, by the way, a very similar mechanism of action, very similar way of acting. So um, the difference, again, with a lot of other products that are out there is this drug has been in thousands of people. So the safety database and, and the understanding of how it actually interacts with people is, is quite well understood at this point. Yeah, we're left now with looking at, does it work for COVID-19? When do you administer it? So that, or when does a person take the pill and for how long? And, you know, yeah. what, what are the effects on them, like in general? Yeah, great question again. So in terms of uh, its use in, in COVID-19, we're, we're doing two different trials. We're running a trial for something called post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning can we stop an outbreak before it occurs? In, in that study, you uh, give the drug um, in, in long-term care, which is where we're using it, um, in, in what's called an outbreak, meaning two or more residents in long-term care have been tested positive. You then treat everybody else on the unit who are at high risk of developing that, that disease. Um, and you look for um, uh, the ability of favipiravir to prevent people from getting sick. You give the drug um, as soon as possible after some folks have tested positive. Um, and you provide the drug for, uh, in this study, 21 days. Um, and then you look for the ability to uh, have a decreased number of cases in units where the drug was given versus placebo, uh, meaning units where the drug was not given. So that's the first study. And the reason that's really important is because the mechanism of action suggests, as we just talked about, that you need to, to knock down the virus as soon as possible so that you don't go on to develop severe disease. And I think that's really the key understanding. When we understand the mechanism of action, it kind of guides when you give the drug. In this case, we want to give the drug as early as possible. And if we can show that it works in a prophylactic setting, meaning before the disease has taken, taken hold of a, of a long-term care unit, for example, just think about the outcomes there, right? Preventing disease is always much, much better if it works. But, it, but frankly, it's a, it's a harder study to run. And so we're, we're running that study um, right now both in Canada um, and now in the U.S. The second study we're, we're running is, a, is a proposing to run and we announced is a phase three study for early treatment. And so again, you give this drug um, very early in the course of disease, within 72 hours of testing positive um, and showing symptoms. And the reason is you want to try and reduce the duration of symptoms and in the viral shedding, meaning the amount of time that someone can make uh, other folks sick. And that's a 10-day study. And so as soon as someone comes to a testing center, um, they get they test positive. Uh, within 72 hours, we give them that Pyrivir and we look for a reduction in the duration of symptoms, meaning you go um, from, uh, based on some of the other studies that have been run that are a little smaller, you go from 11 days down to uh, seven days or seven days down to four days, much the same way that you would give Tamiflu. And so that's that's the second study that's being run right now. So that's a shorter duration study. Um, but again, the, the key is understanding the mechanism of action. We're looking at uh, folks who have not yet gotten sick. We're looking at mild or moderate subjects 
and then trying to reduce the amount of time that they're sick. If we can make this, uh, you know, uh, like the common cold, where you have it for less time, but you don't go on to develop those severe symptoms and become hospitalized, that's really the goal of that study. How good Sorry, you know that. if someone's going to progress? I mean, I, yeah. I worry, I mean, now that I'm running the show, but I worry that, yeah. uh, you know, with, with COVID-19, there's just hysteria. And, you know, someone tests positive on a, you know, on a, t- a PCR test doesn't mean that they're going to get sick or have symptoms. So no, I guess you, you guys are being careful to make sure people are actually symptomatic. But even if so, if it's mild, let's say, how do you know they're going to go on to develop serious symptoms? Yeah. It seems like um, a difficult way to do it. Well, yeah, but it's, it's, this is why studies have to be run in a way that in, ensures that they're randomized uh, placebo-controlled trials. And so we're, we're blinded to what we're giving people, right? And so you look at these, those who are treated and then those who are given a placebo and looking for a, different, a difference in rate. And then it becomes a statistical test to know whether or not the, the arms of the study are large enough to, to show and affect a difference between treatment and placebo. And, and that's really the basis of running these randomized controlled, uh, placebo-controlled trials that, you know, this is, this is why it's so important to run these studies for exactly the reason you just said. Um, there is something called an attack rate, meaning or a progression rate that, we're, that we know from the disease so far. We know that um, the percentage of folks that go on to develop complications or more severe disease, particularly in high-risk populations. Um, so that can be anywhere from 1%. 0.1% if you're a really young infant, but we're not giving it to those kids, uh, we're, uh, to, the, to those young um, subjects. Um, we're looking at those patients who are high risk. And those high risk subjects have anywhere, uh, go on to develop severe disease at anywhere uh, from, you know, three to uh, 17 or 18%, depending on their comorbidities. And so the trial has been designed to look at that specific population where we have the most information um, already. And we know the percentage of folks that are going to go on to develop. And so that's why you use drug versus placebo in a population where you have some understanding of the characteristics and you look for those differences. And so um, trial design is, is incredibly important and also being uh, focused on the outcome um, and using as much information as possible is really important. I think you raise a really interesting point because many of the studies that have been done to date have not been designed to uh, really rigorously look at those differences. The gold standard, of course, is a placebo-controlled trial. And so there are trials that have shown this has worked um, in places like China and uh, India, Uh, but those studies, frankly, were small and uh, um, they weren't designed in the way that really gets at the heart of whether or not this drug works. And so that's what we're doing. Are there any tests out there that can, like, you know, with PCR, I've never heard anyone talk about the number of ramp cycles, you know, so, okay, I test positive. Uh, did it take a whole bunch of, you know, duplication cycles to get me there or did I have few of them, you know, meaning do I have like a high titer in me right now or not? Yeah. And then when you guys evaluate the function of this drug, is there a way even to tell that, you know, the, the amount of viral load someone has and then correlate mm-hmm. that with symptoms and then maybe that's a better indicator that they're going to progress or not? Yeah. I mean, there, there are lots of different tests out there now that are looking at just those kinds of uh, things. And so we have to look at the sensitivity and specificity of the test, which is, you know, this, the cycle number. Um, we can use quantitative RT-PCR um, and, uh, uh, and qPCR. So we're, we're using a, a quantitative method, but you're right. I mean, I think the biomarkers for progression are still being worked out. We know that there are comorbidities that suggest 
that you will go on to develop more severe disease. Um, and some suggest that it's the ACE2 expression, which the virus is used to gain entry to the cell. There is, interestingly, not as much data around exactly what you said, which is your titer. And so it's not entirely clear that someone with a high titer will necessarily go on to develop complications, nor is it clear that someone with a low titer won't. And so I think that's an area where I think um, they're continuing to run that to ground. But the, the best way to determine who's going to go on to develop severe disease are um, some very well-known risk factors, including a BMI of over 26, so body mass index of over 26, other comorbidities, gender, certainly males seem to get it uh, more severely than females do, um, and uh, other other comorbidities uh, like heart disease. And uh, interestingly, a, a couple of small studies demonstrating that asthma. And so these are all symptom-based comorbidities rather than a viral titer comorbidity, which is not shown to be uh, particularly um, helpful. Yeah, and then too, if in people that have comorbidities, they probably are at least maybe a lot more likely to be on drugs that change their ACE2 expression. Uh, so that would also be a big, big factor that would modulate stuff, you know, if they're on blood pressure medication, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't, I don't envy yeah. you. You're right. It's tricky to figure yeah. out what the real signals are. It's tough. It is. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, how do you, and, and so one of the ways to do that is one is, is, uh, is to make sure that the study is, is large enough to try and smooth out some of that um, across the population. And so, um, you know, without getting too deep into our kind of statistical, uh, our statistical analysis, there are some assumptions there. But the fact is, is we really do enrich for um, those comorbidities and have a large enough population um, where you would then expect both those being treated and those not being treated um, are being, are, are, are looking awfully similar. Um, and we do, of course, take a look at the drugs that they're on and, uh, um, and, and try and uh, clean it up that way um, as well. But as you point out, it, it is a, uh, it's, it's a difficult process and one that needs to be uh, very well thought out. And so I, I, I think importantly, um, one, we, we have gotten, uh, we have some fantastic uh, thought leaders on, on the team. It really is a public-private partnership, speaking both uh, with uh, regulatory agents at uh, the Food and Drug Administration and uh, Health Canada for these two studies. Um, they've given us great insight. They're sharing lots of information, and we have a great team of, of, of clinical virologists, uh, both at, uh, at Fuji and, uh, and on the team running the clinical studies. And so it's been a real collaborative effort to try and get to what is the best design in a very fast-paced and uh, quick-moving, quickly-changing environment, frankly. So what's your thought that uh, how long until this could be you know, prescribable by a doctor, I guess, in clinical use? Yeah. So um, I, I believe that we could... If the studies that are ongoing uh, continue to, to show uh, that it's that it's positive, I would predict that we could be in a situation much like we saw with remdesivir, where it starts to get rolled out under what's called emergency use in in the U.S. and conditional approval in Canada and and, and emergency use in some other areas. But the data need to be there to support it, and so I think I'm hopeful that other studies could support that. The the large randomized controlled studies that we are running, I believe. Uh, we're looking at uh, early next year, uh, like March or April, um, for top-line data. And those are the studies, the definitive studies that would support um, an approval or an NDA with uh, FDA. So it's, it's, a, it's a stepwise process, but drug is generally available earlier 
under emergency use. And I, I would suggest that uh, positive data as it continues to come in could support that, but it doesn't obviate or change the, the requirement that we continue with our randomized controlled trials for full approval. So just to be clear, I think sometime this fall, late fall, uh, this year, if we get emergency use, the drug could be available, and then full approval as we move forward probably next spring. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for uh, interested people to keep tabs on the progression of the, the drug development? Where can they go? There are a couple of places, uh, clinicaltrials.gov, if they're technically inclined and want to see some of the details of the clinical trials or even participate in the trials and see if they're eligible. I think that's always a good place. I would just Google favipiravir um, and, and look at the news. There's so much news coming out now about the studies. And, and I, would, I would highlight um, that as they look at those studies, look for randomized controlled, placebo controlled trials. Those are the gold standard for your trials. That's what we need to be looking at at for definitive data. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, the, the Appeal at Therapeutics website and news releases that we have are also helpful. But I think if you start to put together all of those pieces, you get a nice holistic view of the, uh, of the landscape and, uh, and how Fabipiravir is moving forward. Um, it, it is, uh, it is a, again, a rapidly changing landscape and uh, very, very uh, encouraging data are coming out. And so I think over the next month or so, um, this is going to become a much more um, common commonly understood drug than, than we uh, see right now. Excellent. Well, Armand, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, really, really happy, uh, really happy to be here, Richard. And uh, thanks again for, uh, for having me uh, anytime. Uh, happy to talk about this. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.